You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, December 20th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The years-long process that could lead to the reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine is moving closer to its date with the Nevada County Planning Commission. KVMR's Felton Pruitt clarifies the timeline and lets you know how you can still make your voice heard. In Humboldt County, aftershocks from this morning's fatal quake are still rolling in. The California report provides some historic context. We end with Mark Cunaberti's Money Matters commentary. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. At least two people have been injured and there's widespread damage following a magnitude 6.4 earthquake in far northern California early this morning. The earthquake hit just after 2.30 near Ferndale. The Humboldt County Sheriff's Department says one person suffered a broken hip and the other a head injury, but both are expected to recover. Fernbridge, the main road to get into Ferndale, has been closed after part of the road buckled, and thousands of people are still without power throughout much of Humboldt County. Lori Dengler, an emeritus professor of geology at Cal State Humboldt, didn't feel the quake herself in Sacramento, but she did get an alert from the MyShake app, as did many people from as far away as the East Bay area. Dangler has been studying seismic activity along the North Coast for decades. We've got it all. We've got the San Andreas Fault. We've got the Cascadia Subduction Zone. And we have the Mendocino Fault, which heads due west offshore. And this Mendocino Triple Junction is, and it's sort of the adjacent area, is arguably the most seismically active region of the lower 48. And we repeatedly see big earthquakes there. So the biggest in recent times was in 1992 when we had a magnitude 7.2. She says the North Coast actually got hit by another large earthquake on this same day last year. There have been numerous aftershocks in the area, and California's Office of Emergency Services says it's working closely with local and state agencies to provide any help that's needed. California Attorney General Rob Bonta is warning residents looking to make donations this holiday season about potential scams. The AG's office is the state's main regulator of charities. Bonta says potential donors should be wary of organizations with names or websites that resemble well-known charities. We want to make sure again that the donations that you make with your big hearts during this holiday season go uh, to the intended source, to the organization to serve those most vulnerable who are in need that you want to help. Bonta urged Californians to check the registration status of charities on the attorney general's website. That includes information on a charity's legality and how much it spends on overhead. Support for the California report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. Personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com.
Across California and the nation, governments are looking at new ways to address the crisis of growing unhoused communities. In Sacramento, the city and county have agreed to take a new approach, bringing shelter and health care services directly to homeless encampments. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols reports. Christine Price lives in a homeless camp in North Sacramento with her loyal companion, Bibi. She's Chihuahua and um, she's a Chihuahua and Deerhead Chihuahua. Price says Bibi is more than just a friend. Sweetie pie. Yep, she's savage yeah. though, don't get her twisted. She runs off all the pit bulls around here. She's, she's my girl, she, she's kept me from being attacked. Before the pandemic, Price was getting help for her PTSD, which she developed after she was beaten on the streets. I got attacked with my wife on the other side of the light rail by 15 teenage boys about six years ago. She was in a treatment program, but it stopped as COVID-19 spread. For Price, whose camp sits near a rail line, the trauma of the attack remains. Ever since then, I just, I can't be around groups of people. Today, Sacramento's newest homelessness plan is trying to make amends, not just for programs that shut down during the pandemic, but for a fractured approach that allowed unhoused residents for decades to fall through the cracks. It calls for newly formed outreach teams, including mental health professionals, to visit the city's largest homeless camps. The teams are the result of a fledgling partnership between the city and county. Their goal is to reconnect people like Price with treatment, shelter, and housing. One of their first stops was the camp where Price lives. Well, I think it's a good thing if they follow through with it. But the county's been out coming out here the last two weeks. I've been talking to them. Price says she's open to treatment and that housing is her ultimate goal. In the past, Sacramento governments have relied on homeless residents to seek out help on their own, to navigate a complicated web of resources as they also try to survive the harsh conditions of the street. We had hoped that folks would come to us when they needed us, right? Siobhan Katari is Sacramento County's social services executive and says this approach has often led to failure. We have learned a lot from that strategy, just falling flat. Advocates for the region's unhoused community say the fact that the city and county are working together on this new effort is a positive step, but they say change won't be easy. They say the wait times for mental health and addiction treatment are long, and the county is short on staffing. Here's Chris Martin with the nonprofit Housing California. The challenge is what resources are we bringing to bear to provide to folks, and then what kind of housing are we then going to provide for them? Backers of Sacramento's Measure O, a recently approved law that could make it easier for the city to clear homeless camps, also support the region's new direct services approach. But given the massive scale of the problem, they say no one should expect the camps to disappear anytime soon. Here's Amanda Blackwood, who heads the Sacramento Metro Chamber of Commerce. It may take two years to practically get through all of these large-scale encampments and be able to actually triage those folks into services. You know, that that may be true, and so we're just going to need to set our expectation on that. Sacramento County recently agreed to fund up to 600 new shelter beds over the next three years through its new partnership with the city. But that deal, by itself, does not add any new affordable housing, something advocates say is critical to solving the homeless crisis. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, December 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Bureau of Land Management is seeking public comment on a plan to reduce fuels and increase fire protection near high fire risk areas on public lands throughout California. An assessment of the statewide wildland-urban interface aims to move forward on fuel reduction on about 900,000 acres of public land near rural communities. The state director of the BLM, Karen Moritzen, said this initiative is designed to streamline on-the-ground projects to reduce hazardous fuels and double down on our efforts to protect local communities. Her comments were contained in a statement from the BLM Central California District published on ubinet.com. Creating fuel breaks and thinning forest is designed to reduce the intensity, severity, and spread of wildfire on public lands. These treatments will also improve firefighting conditions. The public can submit written comments on the project via the BLM website through January 20th. The first woman to be chosen to lead the California Highway Patrol will retire little more than two years after Governor Gavin Newsom appointed her to the job. Amanda Ray, who is 56, has held every uniformed rank in the state police force. She will retire as CHP commissioner on December 30th, the Sacramento Bee reported. The CHP unexpectedly announced Ray's retirement last week in a news release. Ray oversaw a law enforcement agency with more than 11,000 employees, second only to the New York Police Department, and an annual budget of nearly $3 billion. The B said that the CHP did not provide any explanation as to why Ray was retiring now or indicating this was a planned departure. She has worked for the CHP for 32 years. A figure at the center of a crime involving the deceased former CHP commander for the Yuba Sutter area was indicted for murder late last week, according to a story in the Union newspaper of Grass Valley. Thomas O'Donnell, who was arrested on December 8th at the Sacramento International Airport on an out-of-state warrant, was indicted Thursday for the alleged murder in Kentucky of Michael Harding. Harding was the estranged husband of Julie Harding, who commanded the Yuba Sutter CHP office. He was murdered on September 19th. On December 10th, Julie Harding was found dead of a gunshot wound in Clay County, Tennessee. It has not been determined if her death was a homicide or a suicide. O'Donnell remains jailed in Sacramento. He is scheduled to be arraigned on January 26th, according to the indictment. Turning to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service, our area is looking at a chance of light rain tonight and Wednesday, then a gradual warming trend into the weekend. The forecast for this evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley is for a chance of showers after 10 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 39. Wednesday, we'll see a slight chance of showers before 10 a.m., then mostly cloudy with a high near 49. Wednesday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 37. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, this evening will be mostly cloudy with a low around 23. Wednesday will be mostly cloudy with a high near 40 and a low around 24.
Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland, areas of patchy, dense fog, otherwise partly cloudy with a low around 37. Wednesday, expect patchy, dense fog before 9 a.m., then mostly sunny skies with a high near 52. Wednesday night will be partly cloudy with patchy fog after 10 p.m. and a low around 39. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. If you're confused by the years-long process that may or may not lead to the reopening of the Idaho-Maryland gold mine in Grass Valley, there's a chance you are not alone. The final environmental impact report on the mine project was released last Friday in the wake of the draft EIR and an economic analysis. Next, KVMR's Felton Pruitt talks to Nevada County Senior Planner Matt Kelly to clarify the timeline and let you know how you can continue to make your voice heard on the project as it makes its way to the Planning Commission and the Board of Supervisors. We're talking with Matt Kelly. He's the Senior Planner for Nevada County, and we're going to discuss the fact that Nevada County just released the final environmental impact report, the EIR, for the Idaho-Maryland Mine Project. Uh, thank you, Felton. Yeah, the, the final EIR was released on Friday, December 16th to start the, the public review period for the final EIR for the Idaho Maryland Mine Project. So there was a draft EIR, and then the public got to make comments, and then there was a final one. What happened in between? Did you guys review all the comments from the public and from the proposed developers? We did, yes. So the the draft EIR was finalized in that comment period, I believe, closed in April. And so from there, we reviewed uh, myself and and the planning department and Rainy Planning and Management, who's the county's consultant, reviewed all the comments submitted on the draft EIR. And the, the final EIR includes all the responses to those comments that were received. So we've got the final EIR now, and the public can then review the final report before it goes before the Planning Commission, which is supposed to be in February of 2023. Right. So, yeah, the the final EIR is out for public review. It's not a formal public comment period. Um, CEQA doesn't require that that it be released. It's it's not a formal public comment period. However, the public is welcome to submit comments on the EIR or, or any component of the project and those will be included as part of the public record and forwarded to the Planning Commission and the Board of Supervisors. The Planning Commission will hold a public hearing for the project no sooner than February of next year. I'm not 100% sure on that as of yet, but or when, when exactly that would be, but it is yeah, anticipated to be no sooner than February of next year. Uh, could be later than that. And then after public hearings with the Planning Commission, then they will make a recommendation, which will get forwarded to the Board of Supervisors, who will hold public hearing or public hearings for a final decision on the project. I was going to try and simplify this. There's no way to simplify this. Maybe clarify would be a better word. But basically, (laughs) we have a company called Rise Grass Valley, which is part of Rise Gold, a Canadian company that wants to reopen the Idaho-Maryland mine and make it active again. And there is a, a number of citizens groups that oppose it. Like there's one, the CEA the Community Environment Advocates Foundation, and they oppose it. There's also Mine Watch. And there's actually a webinar going on right now put on by CEA. You can go to cea-nc.org to get information on that or watch that. Is your work done now, Matt? No. The final EIR is out, but then now it's 
putting together the other components of the project, including the staff report, final conditions of approval, the statement of overriding considerations and findings of fact as required by CEQA, and then all of the other findings that we have to make for the various components of the project, which is you know, use permit, reclamation plan, various manager plans, variants, boundary line adjustment, map amendment, and a development agreement, if I remember them all correctly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's quite a mouthful there. There's a, a number of entitlements. The planning department didn't have any part of the economic impact report, did they? Right. Yeah, the economic analysis is, is a completely separate project that's being processed by the county executive office. When did Rise Grass Valley first propose this? Um, it was submitted in November of 2019. So here we are. We're three years down the road and, and now going to be four. It's quite a process you have to go through to do something this large, something that's going to affect so many different people. Right. It's a, it's a pretty large and very unique project for, for Nevada County and for the area. You know, there's not a, not a lot of underground gold mines that are active in California. So it's a very unique and, and uh, interesting project. Is there anything in, in the same scope that the planning department has had to deal with in the recent past? Yeah. The planning department and in Nevada County, we've worked on a number of, of mining projects, as well as um, other you know, larger housing projects. Senior housing projects, and we've done a fair number of larger and unique projects for for the county, as well as a number of mines. So if folks want to see the final environmental impact report, how do they view that on the web? They can go to the Nevada County's website, and under Planning Department, we have a special project website that's been set up specifically for the Idaho Maryland Mine Project. We have the draft EIR there, along with all the other project components. And then the final EIR is there as well, and, and the public can view that electronically. We also have it in hard copy format. There's a copy at the Metal and Helling Library, as well as the Grass Valley Library. Uh, and then there's also a copy here uh, in the planning department that the public can review and take a look at. And the website, once again? It is nevadacountyca.gov, and then it's under planning department, and then planning and supporting documents, Idaho, Maryland, Mayan, Rise, Grass Valley. Hopefully we've given people a little more clarification on this process, which has been ongoing now for three years and probably for four at least. Right. We've been talking with Matt Kelly, the senior planner for Nevada County. Thanks for all the information, Matt. You're welcome. Incoming reports on inflation, both at the consumer level and the producer level, are not looking cheery as the year comes to a close. That's why Mark Cuniberti suggests don't hold your breath if you're expecting Fed Chairman Jerome Powell to move away from his current course of increasing borrowing rates. In today's Money Matters commentary, Mark predicts that's not going to happen anytime soon. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Fed Chief Jerome Powell sobered up Wall Street yet again last week during his latest periodic Federal Reserve speech and news conference as Wall Street attempted to get some sort of pivot sign out of the tea leaves of his musings. No such inkling of a softer Fed was to be found. Pivot means to stop raising interest rates and pivot in the other direction, which in this case would be back down. 
Instead, stone-faced and dead serious as always, Pal once again splashed his monetary bucket of ice water all over those listening, which, by the way, is just about everybody these days, although recent economic statistics have shown a tiny bit of pullback in certain economic metrics as to inflation. The real story here is that inflation is still north of 7%, and that is more than double the 30-year average. Seven years of an inflation rate that high, and you might as well throw half your money in the trash can. Yes, the math works out that badly. Wall Street has had some giddy rallies here and there as tiny glimmers of hope and inflation readings every now and then enticed buyers into the markets. The latest consumer price index, CPI as it's called, showed a slight drop in the prices it measures, and with the bad news bears pretty much taking over the stock market lately, any signs that things may be improving send stocks rallying, albeit if only briefly. One only has to dig a little deeper into inflation statistics, however, to see all is still not well in an Inflation land, CPI measures the prices consumers pay using a select basket of goods over time. Sounds good enough, but the CPI doesn't really tell the whole picture. The producer price index, known as the PPI, measures costs further upstream at the producer level, which are the people that make the stuff the consumer then buys down the line. It's a peek into the price consumers will pay sometime in the future as produced goods trickle down the supply conduits to your local store shelves. Like the CPI, the Producer Price Index report also showed a small drop in year-over-year inflation. But comparing the producer prices to historical norms, food inflation soared to a 12-year high, led by an eye-popping 38% surge in fresh and dry vegetable costs. Ouch! The Christmas dinner might be a tad smaller this year for many folks, and not by choice, but rather by necessity. Making matters worse, there is a core inflation number that strips out food and energy. That core number on the producer level was twice the number the government expected at 0.4% month over month, which is the 0.2% they wanted. Producer inflation costs eventually get directly passed on to who? You. Because Jerome Powell and his minions at the Fed are well aware inflation at the producer level is a precursor to inflation at your local store, the Fed won't back off anytime soon on its raising rates crusade and will likely keep rates higher much longer than Wall Street expects. But the Fed also knows is its history. You have to scroll back to the 1970s when the Fed faced inflation of a similar magnitude. In the early 70s, then-Fed Chief Arthur Burns raised rates and smashed their near double-digit inflation, only to soon thereafter bow to political pressure and quickly lower rates again. Inflation returned with a vengeance and then some and reached dizzying new heights by the late 1970s into almost 20 percent. Whoops! Newly appointed Fed Chief Paul Volcker back then found out in very short order he had to jack rates up to that 20% in March of 1980 to get the job done and bring prices back down. Now keep in mind the current Fed rate is 4.5%. Can you imagine what would happen if 20% rates were the required medicine today? I actually can't imagine it would be that bad. In conclusion, Fed Chief Powell knows his history. Although today's Fed's actions are smashing the market and will soon smash the consumer right along with it, he knows not raising rates high enough and not keeping them there long enough could spell a disaster of unprecedented levels. No, Jerome Powell nor his Fed will pivot any Anytime soon, Wall Street, it will likely be a very long time before he even thinks about it.
I'm watching the market so you don't have to. Remember, this newscast expresses my opinion only and is not meant as investment advice nor the opinion to buy or sell any securities or the opinion of this radio station, its staff, members, media, or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, and California insurance license OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberti. That's our newscast for Tuesday, December 20th. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sierra College, Nevada County Campus, offering degrees, certificates, and training for jobs or career. Plus, courses available in creative writing, sculpture, music, theater, and more. Winter registration is now open online at sierracollege.edu slash ucan.com. And Ubidoc's Urgent Care since 2000, providing walk-in medical and urgent care, accepting most insurance, open 8 to 6, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, Saturdays and holidays, located in the Fowler Center, Grass Valley, ubidox.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Please join us Wednesday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.